Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. All right, we're back with another episode of Shattering Superstructure, this time with Moby, uh, the talented musical artist, and now he can add directing a feature documentary to his resume. Um punk rock vegan movie is a fantastic film i strongly recommend it it comes out um free to the public on february 1st which i think is uh just you know a a very unprecedented distribution strategy and uh, we discussed a little bit about his reasoning behind that for making it available to the public for free as opposed to getting a distributor and putting it on a streaming platform where someone either has to subscribe or, you know, pay to rent it. Um, Moby also discusses how he became a vegan uh, in the 80s. And we delve into the punk rock world, a little bit of its history and the intersection of punk rock and veganism. Uh, Moby also talks about Stranger Things, his song, When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die, is featured in Stranger Things twice, once in season two, once in uh, season four, and it's essentially used in the exact same narrative scenario, um, where you think a main character is about to to die and you feel that sense of pain and loss only to find out that they survive um it's unique but it's incredibly powerful especially in the latest season you know it's 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 great we also have some good conversations about uh, where our politics align and the environment, uh, you know, how the meat industry, uh, you know, is a detriment to our not only ourselves um, and animals, but how it affects um, climate change. And so it's a it's a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. There's even an Elliot Smith shout out. For those of you who don't know, that's my my favorite artist of all time. And uh, Moby talks about how he he briefly encountered him once, um, almost a meet. But uh, it's it's interesting uh, to see his evolution from from being in the punk rock world to then branching out and sort of dipping his toes into so many genres. So without further ado, here's Moby. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, listeners.
Hi, how are you? Hey, Moby, how's it going? Good, thanks. Um, fan fantastic uh, uh, documentary. I, I think it, it was uh, extremely enlightening and uh, really well made. I, I actually, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Did you ever watch the show Mr. Robot? You know, I haven't gotten around to it, um, but my okay. So the recommend it the first me. the first season is really great, and in the first season, there's this recurring plot point about people who hack video on laptops and phones, and as a result, um, and there's no reason to watch the show. It's not. I mean, you're not missing anything. But okay. basically, I turned off all of my cameras after watching it. I turned them off and put tape over the lenses. So enabling video is really challenging. Like I, I would have to go out and get, I have a phone that I, I use for video, but it's, uh, it's not what I normally use. Okay. Got it, man. That, no, that is scary stuff. I mean, I've, I've heard about that too, actually. Um, I always thought it was like an urban legend, but you know, it's so easy for people to do. Um, yeah <laughs> yeah no i totally get it um so uh when, when did the light bulb uh go off for you you know that you wanted to tackle this this intersection between punk and veganism well for me my my introduction to the world of punk rock and animal rights and veganism actually happened in 1982 and in 1982, I was playing in a hardcore punk band called the Vatican Commandos. And we did our one and only tour, which consisted of getting into a van with three other bands and driving from Connecticut to Akron, Ohio, and playing in a pizza parlor for an audience of about three people. Um, but while we were in Akron, we stayed at a vegan squat. Like we slept on the floor of a vegan squat somewhere in Akron. And I had never, I barely knew what vegetarianism was, you know, cause I was a suburban kid who ate bacon cheeseburgers and Stouffer French bread pizzas and steakums. You know, I ate any junk food I could get my hands on. And when I remember waking up in the morning in this vegan squat and they had prepared lentils, and I don't think it up until that point in my life, I certainly didn't know what a lentil was and I had never eaten a bean. <laughs> okay. um, but that was my introduction to it. And then in 1984, I became a vegetarian. And then in 1987, became a vegan. And at that point, even though I was really not that involved in the punk rock world anymore, the vegan world was very punk. You know, it was like, my friends from youth of today and gorilla biscuits and john joseph you know all these people in new york who played in hardcore bands by night and worked in health food stores by day literally and i had always assumed that everybody understood that punk rock had been a huge part of the story when it comes to the evolution of animal rights and veganism and then a couple of years ago, I was talking to some people in the animal rights movement, and they had no idea that punk rock had been a part of the evolution of animal rights. And I was like, well, I don't really want to be a film director, but I guess I have to make this movie because no one else is. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that, 
That makes sense. And, you know, you weren't entirely unfamiliar with, I guess, directing. I think you did a, a video, a music video for David Lynch, right? Who's also done Yeah, I mean, I've, for you. I've over the years, well, when I was in university, I was a philosophy major, but I went to SUNY Purchase, which is a performing arts and film school. Okay. Um, I don't know why I decided to be a philosophy major at an art college, but it made sense at the time. And that was sort of my introduction to the world of film production and editing and, you know, film stock and cameras. I mean, this was back in the late 80s. So like video barely existed. Um, and yeah, my friends and I used to make super odd experimental short films on Super 8, um, occasionally 16 if we could get the film and borrow a camera. Um, so yeah, so I've done lots of weird, call it like dilettante tangential directing, you know, directing my own music videos, directing music videos for other people, but never really thinking of myself as a director. And this movie, it's technically directed, but it's also very idiosyncratic. You know, it's as you, as you know, because you saw it, like it's a very unconventional documentary with a lot of elements narrative elements and compositional elements that most filmmakers probably would never think of incorporating like a talking dog or the devil being interviewed on a newscast yeah that was great <laughs> um yeah no it, it, and i i love that you know just making movies making art with your friends i mean it doesn't get much better than that um you know even uh extending to music you know your collaboration um with so many other artists i think um it probably paid off you know um working on collaboration on a common artistic goal early on with with those um experimental shorts i would assume well there is i mean there's a way overused acronym which is diy mm -hmm. um but at the same time it's the one common thread to all the weird disparate genres and disciplines I've been involved in is you do it yourself, mm. you know, and if there's a company that can help you great, but if not, you ignore that and you keep doing it. Um, you know, in the early punk rock days, if you wanted to play a show, you had to book the venue. You had to make the flyers at your friend's office when the, you know, who had a Xerox machine, um, <laughs> If you wanted to make a record, you had to go to the local pressing plant with a cassette and have them turn it into vinyl. And the early rave days was the same thing. You know, you would that that complete DIY approach. And I guess I've always because I grew up with that, it's very hard for me not to not to think that way. Um, and as we know, and forgive me for stating the obvious, but we live in a creative culture where so many people are waiting for someone else to approve of their creative output. Yes. You know, filmmakers, producers, writers, musicians, everybody's sort of like wondering how they can make something that will gain them the approval of a corporation or gain them the approval of an algorithm. And I can't criticize that approach, except it seems so restrictive you know i mean especially i live in los angeles and i have friends who have spent decades 
not making things because no one will pay them to make it or not making things because simply, you know, they never get the green light to make it. And I'm like, oh, what a terrible way to live. Like, why not just make stuff and love the act of making it? And if anyone appreciates it, fine. If they don't appreciate it, it's not really a problem. Yeah, no, that's what it's that's what it's about. I mean, and you're right. So many people just waiting for the cavalry to come, right? And and uh, yeah, I think you know. And and going back uh, to your doc, I think some people conflate uh, conflate punk, you know, with really not caring about anything. But that's that's not true uh, at all. I mean, people can conflate, you know, anarchy and anarcho socialism to a, a lack of organization you know, if they're not familiar with it. But I think punk is really more of a, a rebellion uh, against authority and being unapologetically yourself. And as you discussed in the doc, you know, questioning everything in society, it's this uh, sort of community of, of, of critical thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, that is, it, it's funny, because I also, I guess, because I grew up reading lyrics and reading liner notes I knew that at its core, punk rock is incredibly principled, you know, arguably more than any musical genre that's ever existed. Like it's really moral and it's incredibly principled and the lyrics are so thoughtful, but they're also screamed and sung incredibly quickly. So I, you know, I brought some friends to a hardcore show a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, it was Youth of Today and I think H2O. And my friends were horrified because <laughs> like people were stage diving and moshing and the music was so loud. And the, you know, Ray and Toby were screaming at the top of their lungs. And my, friend were, my friends were like, what is this chaos? And I was like, actually, these are arguably the most principled lyrics anyone has ever written. You just can't hear what they're saying. And so that is another thing I wanted to show in the documentary is like, oh, you know, punk rockers traditionally are seen as like scary anarchists. And the truth is, especially in the hardcore scene, like they tend to be straight edge, you know, and they tend to be really driven by deeply held principles. Um, you know, as you said, that, that underlying ethos of punk rock and just critical thinking in general is you go out into the world and you assess things, you know, institutions, what have you, based on rational ethical values, you know? And if something doesn't conform, you reject it and you replace it with something better. Um, or you even try and destroy and deconstruct the institution that doesn't work. Like in the case of this movie, food systems, you know? I don't know anyone who thinks that the current food systems are good, but yet 99% of the people on the planet completely buy into them. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, we, we think we're superior to, to animals and, you know, it's, uh, most animals, I think, you know, um, Dave Navarro said this and it really struck me, but the most, you know, they're intelligent, they're sensitive and they're emotional beings. And um, I think we used to have more of a kinship with 
with animals than, than we do now, as opposed to just viewing them as a commodity of capitalism, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I, I hate to say this, maybe this is uh, something I'll regret saying, but like as time has passed, I have largely come to see animals as being superior to humans. Yeah. Um, I mean, last time I checked, animals don't create forever chemicals that cause cancer. Animals don't start genocidal wars. Exactly. Animals don't lie on social media. Animals don't lie ever. Like the animals are incapable of lying. Um, animals live sustainably. You know, like when you look at like millions and millions of years of sustainable life, like that is a sign of a deeper intelligence that human beings have not figured out because clearly we don't know how to survive on this planet for more than a couple of hundred years. That's so true. You know, I think everything started going downhill in the first and second uh, industrial revolutions. I mean, a lot of good things came out of that, but it was just, you know, that's where it started the mass mass production and, and really sort of amped up just the way we we consume the way we eat the way we choose and the irony and i completely agree in the irony there there are two two tragically ironic aspects to that one is that no one's happy yeah so like we are destroying the only home we have we are burning through resources we're killing each other we're killing animals we're decimating the rainforests to create this ridiculous amount of material wealth and no one's happy. You know, like the more material wealth is created en masse, the less happy people become. And it's so ironic. It's like having the biggest party in the world where you burn down your house and everyone hates the party. <laughs> um, and the other irony, of course, is every single aspect of this system that we're talking about is contrary to people's stated values. You know, if you ask people, do you appreciate clean water? Do you, do you appreciate breathable air? Do you appreciate a sustainable world where your children will be able to live happily? Do you like animals? And the answer is like, well, yes to all those things, but then everybody's actions are 180 degrees contrary to their stated principles. And uh, it just like, what do you do in, in the face of that, in the face of that mass self-destructive irrationality? How do you, how does anyone respond except with bafflement and complete dismay? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it too is, is, is virtue signaling. Um, it's, it's, you know, false. Well, one of my favorites, is, uh, Dick, mm-hmm. one of my favorite vegans was Dick Gregory. Okay. It was an incredibly famous comedian in the 60s. And he has such a wonderful quote. He says, don't talk to me about justice when you have dead animals in your stomach. Mm. Damn. Like it's real hard to hear about justice when animals, are li- animals who are tortured and killed are literally rotting in your stomach. Damn, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, and you've got so many great interviews. Um, I know you mentioned some of these uh, folks were your friends, uh, but I mean, from Jane's addiction to, you know, 
the damned crass bad brains youth of today gorilla biscuits um so many others how did you go about sourcing these these interviews and was it uh, a long process to get through well in yeah i mean it was a couple of years of arranging and filming all the interviews and the <laughs> sometimes it was super easy because some people I've just known forever, like Ray and Purcell from Youth of Today, I've known them since 1981. Uh, and other people I just became friends with through the vegan world, through the animal rights world. And then other times it was just being persistent. You know, like I'd never met Steve Ignorant from Crass, but I just kept asking people, like, does anyone know Steve Ignorant? Does anyone know him? And I finally got an email address and was able to reach out to him. Um, in one instance, like with uh, Scott from Earth Crisis um, and Andrew from Fallout Boy, they have a band called Sect. And I heard that Sect were playing in a skate shop in Orange County. And so I just drove down there with my camera and my Zoom recorder to try and interview them. You know, and I, so I show up and I'm like, hey, I'm making a movie about punk rock and animal rights. Can I, can I interview you guys? And they, their question was like, yeah, where's the, where's the crew? Where's the film crew? And I was like, it's just me. <laughs> like, like I think some people have been surprised that when I say DIY, I really mean DIY, like for better or worse, oftentimes worse. I was the one booking the interviews, arranging the travel. I'm the cameraman. I'm the musician. I'm the animator. Like the, I don't, yeah. I don't purport that I was doing any of these things well, but I just loved the idea of basically either doing it by myself or doing it with some friends. Right. Right. It, it, and I mean, that's, that's really what matters is, is, you know, um, the, the um, desire to, to go out and, and make something um, even though you don't know if you can do it, you take the risks, you learn, um, and this turned out to be uh, um, an amazing documentary. So uh, well done on that. I mean, I, I, you know, I know you said you're being humble and, and saying you don't purport to, to do those things well, but I think you did do them extremely well. And um, it was great. Um, but, um, you know, to the interview point, um, I think Theo Kogan is interviewed and, and, Lunachicks could be seen as like an early inter iteration, if not um, in the early stages of the Riot Girl genre. Um, uh, I was wondering if you've seen Portland, any any of Portlandia or their their vegan skits. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Fred is an old friend of mine, and actually, I wanted to interview Fred for this movie because he, okay. you know, he grew up playing in punk rock bands. He's from the hardcore world, and he was a regular at my restaurant, Little Pine. Um, and he just didn't feel that comfortable being involved, but, um, yeah. And I, I, who knows why, but, um, in any case, yeah, I, I love, I Portlandia, I can't watch too much of it cause it does get a little repetitive, but sure. when it's good, it's hysterical. Yeah. And, and I think those skits, you know, they're, they're, they're funny, but they're, they're done completely with, with love. And, and if anything, it, it's a testament to like the um, lasting influence of straight edge, which emerged from that, that Pacific Northwest region and those principles that, 
you know, vegan is still around, even if Portland's making it a little trendy or however, you know, whatever statement they're trying to say, it's done with love. And I know that, um, you know, it, it, it seems like it's taken off even more today than say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, when I went vegan in 1987, there were two vegan restaurants in the entire world. And now there are more vegan restaurants within a two mile radius of my house in Los Angeles than there were in the entire world 35 years ago. Wow. So was, was straight edge, um, was that kind of a turning point for, for veganism in, in the genre or, you know, I mean, a lot of, if you look at like the Venn diagram and you have like the circle of vegan and the circle of straight edge, there's huge overlap. Um, but not complete overlap. I mean, there were definitely, you know, there are vegans who are definitely not straight edge and there's some straight edge people who are not vegan, but, you know, a lot of people to state the obvious were vegan and straight edge. And obviously the, you know, the XVX logo sort of states pretty clearly like straight edge and veganism are very intertwined. Um, And the reason being going back to what we were talking about is that idea of question everything and reject the things that don't conform to your value system. And, you know, for a lot of people with, you know, in the straight edge community, it was rejecting idiotic hedonism. And I personally spent decades indulging in idiotic hedonism and not surprisingly, it doesn't work out. You know, you bottom out and you get sober and you end up being straight edge after going out into the wilderness for a long time. But uh, those two things definitely, you know, for some people, it's just conforming to what's going on around them. But for most people, it's really the product of ethical, rational, critical thinking. Yeah. No, it, 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 it definitely seems like a common thread, not only throughout I guess the, you know, the main sort of wave of punk, but the sort of subgenres that it, it created uh, as well. Um, and speaking of the Pacific Northwest, uh, you've probably heard of this, but uh, the restaurant Junkyard Dog in Silver Lake in Los Angeles is described as a, as a punk vegan hangout spot. Um and the reason why I bring it up is not only not only that, I think the space they took over is pretty special. The front of their restaurant is the Elliot Smith, that famous figure eight um, mural to him. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 don't, I just I don't think I don't think or I don't know if Elliot was ever a vegan. He never really discussed his eating habits in the public space. But I think he'd be proud of that that mural. Um being the face of junkyard dog um for sure yeah i i met him once in passing there and to the point where like i can't even call it a meeting like it was at some spin magazine event and um obviously he was such a tragic delicate figure um and i i don't know anything about him other than his music and the tragic way he ended his life right right yeah, and he, you know, he comes from that milieu of, you know, uh, Heat Miser was 
you know, he, a big punk, uh, punk band and, in that area as well. Um, you know, and especially because one of his main influences, Elvis Costello, and I don't know what genre you would put Costello in, but he's been a vegetarian since the 1980s. I know it's different than vegan, but, um, yeah, it's an interesting connection, I thought. Um, but that's it's 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 cool to see, you know, not only Elvis Costello, but you have people like, you know, um, the Clashes, uh, Mick Jones, you know, Joey Ramone was, um, you know, Ian Mackay. Uh, it's just it's it's so prevalent. And then you have, I think Henry Rollins did a show that was called uh I want to say animal um what was it called um anyways he did a show I think for like National Geographic where he goes and ex explores humans relationship with animals through food and and often confronts our abusive relationship towards them and I'm not sure if he's vegan or not but i know he's dabbled in it and so yeah i mean there's in the world of especially like and it's a tricky thing to talk about but they're definitely and i don't know if henry's part of this or not but quite a lot of people who become vegetarian become vegan and then go back out for whatever reason and all i can say without judging them publicly or harshly is it's just it's just so depressing yeah. um and oftentimes it's the result of bad science like one thing that i find so profoundly frustrating the number of doctors who will tell their patients that they have to eat meat right and to me the follow-up question that everyone should ask their doctor is like oh so how much time have you spent studying nutrition mm -hmm. because what's fascinating is there is not a single medical curriculum, and that's from Harvard, Johns Hopkins, what have you, there's not a single medical curriculum that involves nutrition, unless you specifically study nutrition. So like doctors, you can become a doctor, get your, you know, graduate from Johns Hopkins, graduate from Yale or, or Harvard, and never once take a nutrition class. But somehow doctors think they're experts on nutrition, even though they have never, literally never studied it. Yeah. And well, Hen uh, by the way, Henry Rollins show, it's called Animal Underworld. Uh, I think it's worth a, a, a check out. I, th I think it ran for one season in 2012. But to your point, it it's like, you know, there are grains like uh, quinoa that can give you like uh, the full nutrients that meat would and, and stuff like that. And it's so I think I agree with what you're saying. It's superfluous to to include meat in in your diet when you don't have to, and when there's so many other alternatives. Yeah, the, I mean, the only thing that vegans cannot get nutritionally, or that's very challenging, is B12. You're, okay. You know, that's the only thing that. And what's the irony there is it comes from algae. So, like, you know, it when it exists in fish, for example, uh, and DHA as well, like it's the result of the animal eating the algae or eating, you know, microbes. And so the, but B12 is definitely like, as a vegan, that's, that's, that's my one supplement is okay. B12. 
um, because, and I do take a vegan DHA oil supplement every now and then, but, um, so I will say nutritionally, everything else is to your point, everything that you can get in a, an omnivore's diet, you can very, very easily get in better, more usable form in a vegan diet. And they're the fascinating thing. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of nutrition. Cause I just don't know how many people apart from me might be interested, but the two nutri the two hugely important, powerful nutritional elements, fiber and antioxidants only exist in the vegan world. Yeah. And as time passes, they're finding that like a lack of fiber is behind so many problems. It, it, it's one of the contributing causes of Alzheimer's. It like a lack of fiber can cause cancer. It causes heart disease. It causes, so like when meat eaters say, where do you get your protein? I'm like, oh, I get it everywhere from walnuts, black beans, broccoli, quinoa. Like you can't not get protein in a vegan diet. But the bigger question to meat eaters is where do you get your fiber? Yeah. Cause there has never been fiber in an animal product. And then the other question, where do you get your antioxidants? Because there's never been antioxidants in an animal product. So um, that is really, really interesting. And like the more they find out about the importance, the necessary importance of having a fiber rich antioxidant rich diet, it makes the conventional American diet look even more toxic. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, you know, you've contributed to so many soundtracks. It's incredible. Born franchise. I mean, you did a James Bond song, a theme song, you know, Scream, Heat. Um, I noticed you helped compose a lot of music for shorts, kind of helping budding filmmakers. Uh, oh, well, I don't, I don't compose necessarily. I make my music available. Friends. I have okay. a website called mobigratis.com that gives free music to filmmake to independent filmmakers and film students and nonprofits. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I have tried film composing and I really don't like it. Um, so I love licensing music to people's projects, you know, films, shorts, nonprofits, what have, but, um, I went like, I really am thrilled to never actually do film composing because it's such a specific skill. And my friends were really good at it. Um, by way of example, I went to visit a friend at his studio recently and he was working on one, like some huge budget movie and every room of his studio has Pepto-Bismol in it <laughs> because it's, he's so anxious and so stressed and everybody works with like, they're working like 18 hours a day on this film composing and they're all on Xanax oh and they're all God. battling insomnia. And I'm like, wow, boy, am I thrilled to not be a film composer. I just, you know, sit back and selfishly work on my own music and occasionally <laughs> license it to films. Yeah, no, that, that sounds miserable. Um, but yeah, what's, so what's your criteria for, you know, sharing your music with visual mediums, mediums, you know, on top of the nonprofit and, and, and social commentary documentaries, is it, does it uh, need to connect with you on emotional level, whatever the No, I, my approach with, especially with Moby Gratis is basically here's the music, do whatever you want with it as long as you're not promoting right-wing politics. And as long as you're not promoting meat and dairy. Yeah. But apart from that, like, I, I don't 
I love the idea of democratic chaos. Mm. You know, so I, mm. when I, like, for example, with the punk rock vegan movie, like on February 1st or the 2nd, we are releasing it for free everywhere. Wow, you know, amazing. and at that point, people can do whatever they want with like, even if someone wants to re-edit it, if someone wants to change the music, do whatever, like it's up to them. Like it's no longer mine. Like it's going out there. I cannot monetize it and it will be available free for whoever wants to stream it or download it. Um, partially because that's a reflective of the reflection of the punk rock ethos. Partially, I don't want to create barriers for, uh, there are a lot of people living, especially in the developing world who just can't afford Western costs for content. Yeah. And I don't want to punish them. I don't want to say like, oh, because you are below the poverty line in this country, you can't see this movie that I've made. Like I, I want it to be available free for everyone. But also, and lastly, I love that spirit of democratic anarchy. Um, Sort of, you know, what's funny, maybe you'll find this funny, I think it's kind of funny, is when I launched the Moby Gratis site, I actually went to Creative Commons to see if I could work on it with them, mm -hmm. and they had too many restrictions. Mm. And I really like Creative Commons, trust me, I'm not criticizing them, but I just thought it was funny, is like, they weren't anarchic enough for me. I was like, oh, I just want to give it away and not control it unless someone is doing something terribly wrong with it, like promoting right-wing genocidal politics. Right, right. That that's a that's a good way to see it. So, would you say then that that your experience and your background in punk rock has made you gear more towards left politics, and I mean like left of liberal, um, which I tend to align with um, a lot. See, there's one aspect which is the again going back to punk rock is the punk rock criteria, the way the way in which punk rock assesses things is incredibly rational mm -hmm. um at least from my perspective you know like when ian mckay sort of invented straight edge it was not arbitrary like it was kind of like oh we've looked at the consequences of idiotic hedonism and we're rejecting it and so my politics i'm in i'm of course very progressive definitely skewing pretty far to the left on a lot of issues but informed by reason and it is a lot of, I mean, to really egregiously state the obvious, so much politics is based on irrational perspective, you know, mm -hmm. both on the left and on the right, you know, like I, and even within the animal rights community, like throwing fake blood on a 75 year old woman and expecting her to respond well is maybe not the best way to advocate for animal rights. Um, so I think ultimately there has to be rational criteria applied to political perspectives and also to activism. Like if, if our activism is making us feel good, but alienating everyone we want to reach, then clearly that's not very effective. So I'm not opposed to alienating people, but it has to be done very strategically. Um, but clearly, you know, I'm just lastly, and I'm really stating the obvious regarding politics, there are really ultimately only two issues, which are climate change and antibiotic resistance. And I do think it's heartbreaking that poli politicians and people on the left and the right are focused on a lot of minutia, 
when the truth is climate change is going to decimate everything like like yeah every other issue we care about requires a stable climate and so without a stable climate we have nothing yeah that's that's so true um we we tend to focus on distractions uh not to say that those issues aren't important but you know they're yeah they're, they're I mean, the comparison I make is like, issue. yeah, yeah. If you own, if you own a house, and your gutters need replacing, that's an important issue. But if your house is on fire, you probably have to put out the fire before you can focus on replacing the gutters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I love uh, when it's cold. Uh, I'd like to die was featured in strange two stranger things scenes. Uh, were you expecting the, the Duffer brothers to, to call you again for la- the latest stranger things season and basically oh. use it for like the same exact type of scenario? I have no idea. I mean, I didn't know okay. about either one of those uses until I was watching the TV show. Really? And so the okay. first time it happened, I was like, wow, that's good. The first time, was in season one, at the end of season one, they use when it's cold, I'd like to die. And I was so touched by that because <laughs> I was the only artist included who hadn't made records in the eighties. Oh, okay. you know, everybody else was like, you know, artists from the eighties. And then they included when it's cold, I'd like to die. I was like, wow, that's cool. And then the most recent use of it, I mean, they use when it's cold, I'd like to die. It's the, the emotional, denouement of the entire season and it's so emotionally intense like friends of mine were texting me saying like i'm sitting here weeping while your song is playing you know so intense and i wasn't expecting it and it it started playing and when you license music to something your assumption is like oh it's going to play for 10 seconds and then go away and in this case it just kept playing like it just kept playing and it became more emotional and more intense um so yes, yeah, so it was really incredible. I mean, may, I'm sorry to be selfish, but it was just very, very gratifying. This yeah. song that was 25 years old, if not 28 years old, would suddenly be exposed to you know literally tens, if not hundreds, of millions of people. Yeah, no, I, I, I cried. I cried my eyes out. I think in both both seasons it was used in. Um, and yeah, that even, second one, it's funny. The second one, I actually had friends say like, that was almost too emotional. Like people were like, <laughs> that was almost like emotional pornography. It was so intense. Yeah. You know, and I think it represents uh, the upside down in the show, but maybe overcoming depression as, a, as obviously its own standalone track and more from more of a societal perspective. Um, it seems it see, that's that's what I take out of the song. Yeah. Yep. Is overcoming depression, um, and uh, or at least the feeling of it, sort of the seeking sinking feeling of it. Um, well, ultimately, and that's something I sometimes have to remind myself of is that we were talking earlier about how generally terrible humans are, but underneath it is the vulnerability of humans. You know, the fact that everyone apart from like psychopaths and sociopaths, like deep down, everyone's wrestling with the same issues. You know, everyone's vulnerable, everyone's scared, everyone's aging, everyone's getting sick. 
everyone is dealing with issues of inadequacy. And I sometimes have to remind myself like, okay, sure, that family might be eating at McDonald's and I might very easily have contempt for them for filling themselves with dead animals. Yeah. But I have to remind myself like, okay, it's, it's reminding myself to find that compassion for them because you know, the hidden parts of people's lives are just filled with doubt and vulnerability. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so true. Whether we express it in more overt ways or we bottle it in and try to be stoic. It's yep. Moby. I, I really appreciate your time and your generosity with your answers and your documentary is amazing. Uh, so congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was really a great, a great pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, and uh, best of luck on the rest of your, your press. And uh, yeah, looking forward to when it uh, becomes free and available to everyone. I think that's yep, I think February 1st at that point, it's no longer mine. Awesome. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, thanks again. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, and that's a wrap on episode six of Shattering Superstructure with Moby. I appreciate uh, everyone for listening and uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, don't forget to watch Punk Rock Vegan Movie for free online once it drops on February 1st. And for those of you who are in San Francisco, uh, it's also playing uh, on the big screen at Roxy Theater. Um, and that would be February 4th. So if you're in town for SF's Indie Fest, um, go online, buy yourself a ticket, and get your butt into the seat of the theater. It's going to be pretty special. You know, I, I personally saw it on... Uh, my computer as it hasn't premiered yet in San Francisco but I'm definitely going to be attending uh, you know the big screen event on the 4th um, to sort of get that theatrical experience uh, anyways uh, next episode we will have uh, David Arquette and uh, there's some good tidbits in that one uh, keep an eye out for some scream shout outs. So anyways, I'll see you next time listeners on shattering superstructure. This is Alex signing off. Mm -hmm.